This is Ron Stockton. I've been thinking for over a year about a podcast discussing some good books on religion. This is not religion in the sense of doctrine or sectarian identity. It is about books that will make you think or will give you new or different perspectives on religious topics. I have 12 books that I'm going to discuss. Three deal with Islam, two are by Gary Wills, and six focus upon Christianity. These are all books that really made me think when I read them. I hope one or two might interest you. And please remember that I'm a political scientist, not a theologian or a minister. Let's start with three books about Islam. Karen Armstrong has a biography called Muhammad. Armstrong is a noted writer on religious topics. She has a particular interest in Islam, but is written on Christianity and religion in general. She also has a memoir about her life as a nun and her decision to leave her order. Uh, that's a bit painful in places. Armstrong is not a trained academic, but she is a serious writer. What I like about her biography of Muhammad was that she relies heavily upon primary source material. By that, I mean she uses early biographies of the Prophet dating back to the beginning centuries of Islam. She addresses some topics that I found particularly interesting. Muhammad's early life and the beginning of his prophecy, his time in Mecca when his followers were marginalized and oppressed, his escape to the mountain city of Taif and the issue of the Satanic Verses, his flight from Mecca to Medina and his selection as the ruler of that city, his inclusion of Christians and Jews into his political community, his ummah, the rules of warfare, that is, jihad, and his return to Mecca in triumph. I have a side story of this book that you might like. I was on an academic program in Saudi Arabia and took this with me as reading material. I mentioned it to a prominent Saudi who was very excited. He asked me if I would give it to him, which I did. He told me it was banned in the kingdom. Another book on the origins of Islam is called After the Prophet by Leslie Hazelton. Hazelton is also British and also not an academic. But she's very serious about the study of Islam. I brought this book in the Abu Dhabi airport. I was finishing a trip to Oman and needed something to read on the way back. I was cautious about a book on the Sunni-Shia conflict, especially in a place that was caught up in the conflict, but I read a few pages and was impressed. There were also some blurbs from prominent people, including Muslim scholars, who had strong words of praise, so I decided to take a chance. The book focuses upon what happened to Islam in the years after the death of the Prophet. Hazelton raises a question. Muhammad had spent his whole career mediating between factions and trying to keep his ummah, his community, together. And yet within weeks of his death, it had broken into factionalism and ultimately into violent conflict. This conflict still exists in terms of the Sunni-Shia split. How did that happen? Hazelton begins her book by saying it started with a necklace. Muhammad's young wife, Aisha, got left behind as the caravan was moving from one place to another. As they were leaving, she had rushed off into the bushes to relieve herself. As she, as she was getting into the covered enclosure in which she rode, she realized her necklace was missing. It had been given to her as a gift by her husband. 
At the last minute, she jumped out of the enclosure and rushed back to find it and was left behind. She was a young woman, married at an early age to a much older man, and would often chat with young guys. By the time they realized she was not with the group, they were not sure what to do. But then she appeared on the back of a camel, giggling and talking to the young man who had rescued her. Muhammad's cousin Ali, one of his closest allies, was outraged at what he saw as possible infidelity. He was also Muhammad's son-in-law and the husband of Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, and father of, of his grandsons, Hussein and Hassan. Ali insisted that I should be sent back to her father, which happened. But a complication was that her father was Abu Bakr, one of Muhammad's right-hand men. Suddenly, the community was torn between two powerful rivals. A timely revelation was able to paper over this dispute but the time for the time being, but as soon as the prophet died, it exploded into the open. Ali and Aisha were estranged, and their followers lined up behind the two prominent leaders. This estrangement was complicated by the fact that the Oma chose Abu Bakr as the successor, i.e. the caliph, of Muhammad. This enraged the supporters of Ali, called Shia, which is what that word means, supporters of Ali, who said they had a statement by Muhammad himself that he wanted Ali to succeed him. When Ali later declared himself to be the commander of the faithful, that is, the imam, there were then two centers of power within Islam, one political, one religious. And the Shia side claimed that the family of Muhammad had been entrusted with the protection and leadership of the faith. This book is filled with careful discussion of many issues that confuse non-Muslims, and also some, some Muslims. How many wives did Muhammad have? What did it mean that his wives were kept behind a curtain? Why were there such tensions between the people of Mecca and Medina? And why did so many Muslim leaders during the first 50 years after Muhammad die violently? If the two centers of power were Damascus and Mecca, how did Iraq get involved in this power struggle? What is the Battle of the Camel? Who are the Karajites? And why are they so scary? And why do some people think they still exist today in Al-Qaeda and ISIS? What is the Battle of Karbala? And why is the commemoration of Ashur so important to the Shia? Are you looking for heroes and villains? Well, there are plenty of both. But overall, Ali emerges with a better reputation than Aisha. Anyone reading this will come away with new vocabulary and new insights. Okay, on a different topic, for the first time I've found the Quran to be a readable text. I've read it selectively before, but reading it more comprehensively was difficult. There were two reasons for this problem. First, the popular translation by Yusuf Ali, who was British, was intentionally translated to resemble the King James Version of the Bible. It has those Shakespearean flourishes such as thou and hast and whilst. Yusuf Ali wanted it to seem familiar in style to the British and Americans, so he did it that way on purpose. It's a good translation and well-intentioned, but just did not work for me. It has the additional advantage of attaching helpful commentary to difficult tasks, explaining when and why they were revealed and what they meant. It was a bit like the Jerusalem Bible in that sense, providing some understanding for the reader. 
But the Quran in general, whatever the translation, had a second problem. The editor, Uthman, the third caliph, decided to organize the chapters, surahs, by length. To Muslims, this is a logical way of doing things. To someone such as me, it breaks up any flow in the text. I could never figure it out. Reading it from front to back made it incomprehensible. I compare this problem with that of the Bible. It is also not meant to be read from front to back, like a novel. But it at least has clusters of books with common themes. It kicks off with the Torah, then histories, then some wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, for example, then some prophets, then the Gospels, then the letters or epistles of Paul, and finally the book of Revelation. Organizing the Quran by length of chapter deprives the text of its major integrative feature. That feature is the order in which the revelations emerged. Muhammad spent his first years as a prophet in Mecca, where he was a dissident leader, harassed by the authorities, and often at risk of arrest or even assassination. The 82 revelations during this time focused upon theology and social justice. There is only one God. Be kind to your neighbors. Behave honorably. Look after the poor. Look after the orphans, etc. Then he fled for his life and went to Medina, where he was invited to become the ruler of that city-state. It had been having tribal and religious warfare, and he was charged to create a constitution that could unite the city. In Medina, the nature of the 32 revelations there changed. Now they focused more upon governance and law, how to maintain order, how to handle conflict, how to live in a multicultural and multi-religious society, the rules of welfare, war, sorry, warfare, these revelations are very different from those in Mecca. A trained Muslim scholar knows which are which, but for a non-Muslim reader such as myself, the surahs are a jumble of texts. So why am I happy? There's a new translation of the text by Qadr Abdullah. He's an Iranian who has lived in the Netherlands since 1988. He has written several well-received novels. His translation of the Quran has two dramatic advantages. First, it is readable. It flows nicely, as one might expect from a successful novelist. It was originally in Dutch, but then translated into English. Uh, note the Jerusalem Bible, my favorite modern translation, was originally in French, but was then retranslated into English. When God speaks to Muhammad, it is in a modern conversational style. For someone not fluent in Arabic, this is a very reader-friendly. Second, it is organized according to the order in which the revelations occurred. I know that there are Muslim authorities who consider the order of the original edition by Uthman to have been revealed and not subject to compromise. But to someone such as me, this organization is supremely logical. Abdullah entitled his book, The Quran, A Journey. In the process of translation, he consulted several versions of the Quran, the Arabic version belonging to his father, four Persian translations, five Dutch translations. When he was in doubt as to the correct word choice, he would consult experts for advice. The five volumes of commentary by Tabari was one. Then there were the wise scholars he knew he could ask for help. He tried to stay very close to the intention and meaning of the text. 
For those of us who are encountering some of these texts for the first time, Abdullah introduces most surahs with a context for what was happening and why the revelation was given. As I tell my students, context is as important in understanding meaning and intent as is the text itself. Just taking the text without the context is called proof texting, i.e. finding passages that support your position regardless of the intent. If you've been afraid to approach the Quran because of its stilted style and the unfamiliar context of specific passages, this will be a good choice. And it can be purchased for under $10 on the internet. Okay, two books by Gary Wills. Gary Wills is a major American intellectual, someone whose writings are accessible to the average reader. He is perhaps best known for his Pulitzer Prize winner, Lincoln at Gettysburg, written in 2012. I first encountered Wills in 1970 when he wrote a book called Nixon Agonistes. It was a psychological analysis of Richard Nixon, then a new president. I had never encountered that style of analysis before, and it shook my thinking. At times it seemed like satire, but it was actually serious analysis. I've read several books by Wells, but his books on religion and culture are my favorites. I'm going to suggest two to you, one entitled What Paul Meant, and one called Papal Sin on the Catholic Church and Why It Shot Itself in the foot. Let's start with what Paul meant. Wills wrote it in, in 2007. He says there is exceptional hostility to Paul, often portraying him as a bigot. This got to be really, really bad in the 1800s in Germany, but that's a different topic. Wills notes that Paul certainly leaves himself open to criticism by modern readers with his comments on the role of women and the nature of gay relationships. But Will says there are several things that complicate our understanding of Paul. The first has to do with authenticity. While there are 13 Pauline epistles, an epistle is a letter, only seven are authentically written by Paul. In order of being written, these are 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, Philemon, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. The second complication is that while in the Bible, the Gospels precede the letters of Paul. In fact, Paul wrote before the Gospels. That means that his letters were written before the violent Jewish nationalist uprising and before the destruction of the temple by the Romans. The Gospels reflect the despair and apocalyptic hope of that post-temple age. Paul was spared that disaster. There are also we are also sometimes confused by the fact that words have different meanings in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. For example, apostle is an assignment, not an office. The same is true with the word deacon. There was no hierarchy or even an organized church in Paul's age. Likewise, there were no congregations, only meeting groups in homes led by prominent personalities. Knowledgeable people may know these things, but as Wills brings them together, he produces a really different reading of these texts. In his final assessment, he says we have to move away from our contemporary way of thinking, that the biblical texts are somehow revealed and are accurate descriptions of places and events that should be treated as literal. Acts, for example, is described as a theological novel, similar in format to Hellenistic novels of the age. It has a journey, storms, shipwrecks, monsters, and an arrival at a destination. 
If you want to encounter a different way of thinking about Paul's writings, this is a good place to start. Another book is Papal Sin, Structures of Deceit. Wells, a Catholic himself, feels that the church has gotten itself into a logical trap. He starts with a discussion of the Holocaust and how the Vatican explains that the church, quote-unquote, was not involved. But what was the church? Is it the hierarchy, the pope, the bishops, the priests? Is it individual Catholics? If it is any of those, then the church was definitely compromised. But the church defines itself as a pure divine institution well above anything found on earth. I remember back when there was a debate over the involvement of the church in slavery, and John Paul II issued an apology, a mea culpa, apologizing for the involvement of the church in the slave trade. One outraged person insisted that this could not possibly be true. The person insisted that Catholics might be involved in slavery, bishops and priests might be involved in slavery, and even the popes, but the church is a pure divine institution and could not possibly have been involved. And here Wills makes a key point. The church has gotten itself into a bind. As a divine institution acting on divine impulse, it is not capable of going back, going beyond the divine. Moreover, here Wills reaches another conclusion. It cannot acknowledge that any of its decisions were wrong. That leaves it trapped in its errors, even when it recognizes those errors and the ongoing harm they do. Wills believes that what he calls the most disastrous papal document of the 20th century was Humani Vitae, the birth control encyclical of 1968. In terms of the damage it did, it is the equivalent of the syllabus of errors from the 19th century, a document that set the Catholic Church at war with modern thinking and modern science. Both left the Church shooting their own wounded on the battlefield, as he puts it, as he sees it, human vitae was not about sex, but about authority. It constituted a major reorienting of the moral energy of the church. Suddenly, issues such as birth control became central to the church's teaching, pushing aside the long traditions of social justice. Condoms and birth control pills were not only banned for the Catholic faithful, but for the public in general, including non-Catholics. Masturbation became an important issue. An insistence on the sorry, an insistence on the unreliable rhythm method was left as the only approved method of contraception. And this left couples maneuvering around each other for blocks of time each month. What a catastrophe. Later, the church set up a study group to consider possible changes. Several of its members favored modifying the rules. During that Vatican spring, if we might call it that, the new pope, John Paul I, even wrote a note of congratulations to the parents of the first in vitro child, conceived by masturbation, we might note. But John Paul I died after just a month in office and was replaced by the conservative John Paul II, who began to emphasize opposition to birth control and abortion as central teachings. These teachings produced harsh outcomes. It was unacceptable to masturbate even to produce a child, and using a condom was prohibited even if it could prevent AIDS. Will says that the gift of John Paul II 
and Cardinal Ratzinger, his successor, who was in charge of church doctrine, was to leave behind a gay priesthood and, we might add, a pedophilia crisis that cost billions of dollars in penalties and led Catholics to flee in droves. Why not just say Vatican II told us that sex in marriage was not just to produce babies, but to bond couples together? And it would be a great hardship for women to get pregnant every time it became possible. Families would break down in poverty. Why not say that and move away from a failing policy? Well, there's a reason. The church has declared that its positions are of divine origin and are therefore not reversible. If they would just admit that the organized church is a human institution subject to human weakness and errors, it could adjust, but it has taught the exact opposite. Hence, it is forced to live in a state of, of deceit, a situation that has forced it to engage in bizarre argumentation that all good Catholics are expected to accept and embrace. The harm done to the faith has been enormous. This book is shocking and logical and will make anyone think, especially Catholics. There are several books on Christian, Christian belief that are worth your time. One that I read recently focuses upon Christian and Islamic perspectives on Jesus. It is called Jesus in Muslim Christian Conversation by Mark Beaumont. Beaumont is a research associate in the London School of Theology. He is a specialist in Muslim-Christian theological dialogue. Beaumont creates a conversation between two believers, Paul, an evangelical Christian, and Abraham, a Sunni Sufi. Both are well-read, thoughtful, and respectful. Beaumont, who is not of either of these traditions, is exceptionally well-versed in the thinking of both traditions, so he's able to generate thoughtful interactions between these two. There are ten chapters, Born of Mary, Miracle Worker, Teacher of Love, Proclaimer of the Kingdom of God, Word and Spirit of God, Son of Mary and Son of Man, Son of God, that's a big point of contention, Messiah and Redeemer, Raised from the Dead, and Returning in Power. What we the reader begin to realize as we read the book is that Muslims and Christians share quite a few teachings. The two discussants are exceptionally well informed about the other religion. Thank you, Beaumont, for giving your discussants that depth of knowledge. It helps us readers get beyond argumentation. The two discussants are able to say, your great scholar X said so-and-so, which is exactly what we teach. So perhaps you are not as far from us as you think. But then someone will also say on a different point, our great scholar Y says so-and-so, which is completely different from your teaching. And each discussion is able to find dissenting theologians who are close to the other tradition and their own. And by the way, neither Paul nor Abraham wins this debate. This is a respectful dialogue by thoughtful people. If you're interested in this topic, you could not do better than this book. It is extremely well-researched, filled with quotes from all sides, quite happy to acknowledge similarities, but also willing to acknowledge disagreements. And it's very readable. Some of you may know that I did an earlier podcast on the topic of, Is Christianity Polytheistic? If you're interested in this topic, you might want to listen to that podcast. There's a book that I found really fascinating. It's called Zealot by Raza Aslan. It gave me a way of thinking that was not only totally different, but made sense to me as a political scientist. The author, Reza Aslan, is a Muslim who grew up in California. 
at first I avoided this book because I suspected it would just be an Islamic apologia, an effort to make a case for Muslims, for Muslim views of Jews. I'm not hostile to that view, but I understand it and did not need another book uh, on that subject. But Aslan says he grew up with Jesus of Nazareth in his heart. Wait, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Christ? Well, he thinks there's a difference. Keep going. This book is quite different from my ex expectation. It focuses upon the power structure of the day. A foreign power, the Romans, have established a brutal regime in Palestine. They have removed the Jewish religious leaders and replaced them with their agents. These priests have become filthy rich and far detached from God. There is a resistance group, the Zealots. This is not the political Zealots who led an uprising against Rome. That came a couple of decades later. These are religious Zealots who are defined by their passion for their faith. They are also defined by their passionate contempt for the religious authorities. The key antagonists of the day are the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate and the high priest Caiaphas. Both are corrupt. Both are focused on protecting their privilege. Aslan makes a point that is well known to biblical scholars. The Gospels were written two decades after the events they describe. Jesus died in the year 33, well before the violent Jewish national uprising against Rome in 66 to 70. That uprising shook the empire and produced two, two emperors, Vespasian and his son Titus, both of whom were military commanders. Wills notes that the epistles or letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. This is very significant in understanding how to read them. Wills talked about this also. The Gospels were written not in the homeland, but elsewhere within the Roman Empire. The Christians were eager to separate themselves from the extremism of Jerusalem and to show that they were loyal Roman citizens. They were nonviolent followers of a faith, not violent Jewish nationalists challenging the empire. The story of the trial of Jesus was written in a way to make that point. The hero, if there is one, is Pilate, who engages in excruciating exchanges with the prisoner Jesus, determined to find out if he is truly guilty or not. Obviously, he is suspicious of the high priest, but in the end, he is coerced into agreeing to the execution. And the Jewish crowd even chants, his blood is upon us and our children, doubling down on the point. And Pilate washes his hands in a symbolic gesture to separate himself from what the priests are about to do. Well, the reality is that Pilate was a brutal murderer who executed so many Jews without any due process that he was called back to Rome to answer for his offenses. It is totally illogical that he would give a wit about whether this Jewish troublemaker was innocent or guilty. But in the biblical telling, Rome is innocent, which it was not, and the Jewish people were collectively guilty, which they were not. The fact is that Jesus was executed not for blasphemy, a religious offense, but for sedition, i.e. an attempt to challenge Roman rule. In reality, Jesus was caught up in a movement to expel Rome and to crush the priesthood. There is no evidence that he was a political leader, much less a leader of one of the violent groups that engaged in assassination, the Sicarii. Still, he was a threat to Rome, and his contempt of the priests, Roman allies, was unconcealed.
On one occasion, he healed someone on the Sabbath, which was prohibited under the rigid Taliban-like rules that the priests had established. When he had finished, he said to the man, Go tell the high priest what I just did. It was an act of contempt and a direct challenge. This book will not satisfy a traditional Christian believer. But if you're interested in a different take on the rise of Christianity, it is well worth your time. I have three books that are hard to classify. The first is Upon This Rock by Samuel Friedman. I found this book fascinating. The story is that a journalist, a Jewish journalist in fact, went to live in a black megachurch in Brooklyn for a year. This was done with the permission and cooperation of the congregational leadership. His assumption was that during a one-year time frame, he, it would be possible to see all of the dimensions of the life of the congregation. This was the same assumption of H.G. Bissinger, who went to live with a Texas football team for a year in 1988 and wrote that wonderful book, Friday Night Lights. What both books show is that in a year, there is a whole cycle of life in which almost everything that could possibly happen will happen. The congregation was led by an amazing pastor named Johnny Ray Youngblood. He was originally from South Carolina, but he moved to New York and became pastor of a once strong but now struggling congregation in a poor neighborhood. Under Youngblood's leadership, the congregation has grown to a megachurch with vast social programs and a pastor nationally famous for his achievements. He was known for retaining details of members of the congregation in his head, details that he could throw out in the middle of a sermon with remarkable effect. Jimmy there, who was known as lightning in his hometown because of his, his ability to electrify, to electrify uh, opposing, electrocute opposing players on the basketball team, that sort of thing. As we follow the church through its year of life, the author's expectations were fulfilled. Almost everything happened. The pastor's unknown son, born out of wedlock, appears and has to be acknowledged and integrated into his family. A beloved deacon is accused of sexual abuse and has to go through a suspension and a formal congregational investigation. But perhaps the most shocking development from the perspective of the minister was when he was in a grocery store and a strange woman walked up to him and greeted him by name. He asked her how she knows him, and she said, I'm one of your parishioners. I attend your church. The minister was shocked and suddenly realized that he is so caught up with his success that he's losing touch with his congregation. This leads him back to his board of deacons for a frank and comradely talk. How many of you have had a one-on-one -on -one with someone in the last month? And don't ask me what I mean by a one-on-one. -on -one. It's like sex. If you've had it, you don't have to ask for a definition. Let's pause for a side note. The church board is entirely male. Reverend Youngblood realized that, that there is a feminization of religion that often turns men away. To neutralize this tendency, he often makes crude sexual comments during board meetings, just to let the guys know that they are welcome. This is just one of the surprising details that the reader learns along the way. This remarkable book inspired me to write my own Millennium Journal in the year 2000. Every night after my wife would go to bed, I would stay up for an hour and write up what happened that day. Events in the news, conversations we had, things I had read, stories of family members. 
A year in the life of a person or of a congregation or of a football team covers just about everything that could happen. Back in the 1990s, a young student at Brown University, Kevin Roos is his name, went with his professor to visit Liberty University, Jerry Falwell's training ground in Virginia for young Christian conservatives. The professor was conducting a research project. The student was a non-practicing Quaker, and Liberty was evangelical and very conservative. And yet he decided to enroll in Liberty without telling anyone he was going to use his time there to write a book. He enrolled in all the required courses, including the Introduction to Science course taught by a noted scholar. Given that the ideology of the campus was against any acknowledgement of evolution, he expected more doctrine than science, but was pleasantly surprised. He was also surprised by his classmates, who were quite open and did not fit the stereotypes he had when he started his studies. He decided to make a good-faith effort to be a typical Liberty student. He would do everything that other students did, including joining the choir and attending morning chapel. He even enrolled in an organization that he jokingly calls Masturbators Anonymous. This reflected the campus policy against such a practice and the reality that many of the young men were regularly drawn to temptation. He even dated a co-ed, even though the normal activities of dating in America were prohibited. The book ends with Gross interviewing Jerry Falwell himself on behalf of the student newspaper. This was Falwell's last contact with any journalist. He dies right after the event. The interview appears in the book, portraying a surprisingly reflective Falwell, given his passionate conservative public views. Did I mention the name of the book is called Unlikely Disciple? Rodney Stark was one of the top sociologists in the country. He's gone now. He had a career-long interest in religion as a sociological process. It was his belief that those who look at religion often get caught up in debates and stray from detached scholarly analysis. He decided to examine the first 300 years of Christian history from a scholarly point of view. He would leave aside doctrines and would treat Christianity, which had soaring success during this time, as if it were a non-religious movement. In his short book, The Rise of Christianity, was the result. He starts by looking at the Mormons, who have had, and still are having, a meteoric rise. How did they do that? Many people look to the missionaries, the young people who dedicate two years of their lives to go from place to place and door to door, sharing their story or their faith. But Stark says if we look at who actually joins a church, or any organization for that matter, It is not because of cold calling or ideology, but because someone they know invites them to an event or a service. Interpersonal contact is the key. And what about the assumption, widely accepted, even by serious scholars, that Christianity was a religion of the poor? The elite stayed with their religion, but the poor turned to Christianity. Stark provides remarkable evidence that the early converts were actually well off. Looking at the letters of Paul as a starting place, he follows up with academic research on the nature of the Jewish communities that Paul visited. He notes the well-known distinction between a cult and a schism. 
A cult is a movement that grows up around a personality. A schism is a breakaway movement usually linked to a mix of class tension and doctrinal dispute. A cult draws from the privileged classes, a schism from the underclass. Much to the surprise of many readers, he says Christianity is more a cult than a schism. We often think of a cult as involving abusive leadership or deranged thinking, but that is not the standard definition that Stark would use. My students who read this book really liked it. The whole issue of heresy has always upset me. Heretics were often burned at the stake or subjected to other grievous abuses. And, as a political scientist, I often see these struggles in political terms, that people in power establish some official belief and require their subjects to affirm what are often illogical or mystical statements. I was glad, therefore, to encounter this book, Heresies and How to Avoid Them, edited by Ben Karash and Michael Ward. It's based on a series of sermons for by the various authors. It embraces an affirmation of the integrity of those who deviate from official teaching. They're often serious believers who are struggling to be true to scriptures, as the foreword puts it. The problem is that they often make logical jumps into positions that are simply not consistent with official church teaching. Many heresies, originally identified 17 or 1800 years ago, are still about. People embracing them don't even realize what they are embracing. Let me quote from the foreword of the book. When all is said and done, orthodoxy is the hard discipline of learning to say what needs to be said and no more. Too often those who have learned to, we have learned to call heretics have tried to say more than can be said. They have succumbed to the temptation to say too much by explaining what cannot be explained. Orthodoxy shows why and what we believe cannot be explained, but can only be prayed. What Christians believe is wonderfully simple, but to say what is simple is not easy. If you're interested in doctrinal issues, you may have heard of Gnostics, Nestorians, Arians, Adoptionism, Donatism, Pelagianism, and Marcionism. The belief that we don't need the New Testament. Yeah, sorry, the Old Testament. This book is not for everyone. But if you're interested in Christian doctrines and Christian religious history, this is a really interesting place to start. The authors are not ideologues. They're not trying to impose views. They're just trying to educate their readers. I learned quite a bit from it. So let's look at Metzger's book, Breaking the Code. Perhaps the most difficult book in the Christian Bible is the book of Revelation, called the Apocalypse of St. John by Catholics. St. Augustine wanted it included in the Bible. Luther thought it about removing it, but in the end left it in. This book has provided our language with some astonishing images. Streets of gold, four horsemen of the apocalypse, the end of time, Alpha and Omega, 666, the bottomless pit, a new heaven, and a new earth. But it has also caused much confusion, with different traditions generating bizarre interpretations of what its symbols mean, and with charlatans on television making money from confused believers. And a cottage industry of left-behind books and films has also emerged. 
One problem is that a simple reading of the text reveals amazing statements that some people think refer to specific events and persons of our contemporary age. Will there be a literal thousand years of justice and a beast unleashed and a final battle with the forces of God and the forces of Satan facing off? Will there be a dragon and two prophets and fire and destruction? Of course, in an age of nuclear <coughs> weapons, such fears are not over the top. But the question is whether the text is giving us advance warning about specific events and individuals. Some people think the reference to a whore of Babylon sitting on the Great River refers to Saddam Hussein. How amazing that a book written 1900 years ago was intended directly for those of us watching CNN and fretting over whether the Kuwaiti oil would be lost. What about all of those who had read this over the centuries? Did it have nothing to say to them? Bruce Metzger is a noted professor at Princeton. He's written an accessible book on this text. It is called Breaking the Code, Understanding the Book of Revelation. It's not very long. Metzger's approach is quite different from the one many people know. He says the text does not mean what it says. It means what it means. The author knew what he meant, and the readers knew what he meant. But today, over 1900 years later, we have a different way of thinking and a different understanding of international power and politics and tend to impose our own thinking on the text. He says we need to remember that the style of writing in that age was very different from what we know today. This book is a series of word pictures meant to appeal to our imagination. It is not a book of literal facts or events or individuals. It is filled with visions and symbolic language. The context of the age is important. For example, the Roman Empire is described metaphorically as a beast. It was written for those of John's generation. John being the author. Christians were an oppressed minority, and the book was assuring them that this oppression would not last forever. Many of the verses harken back to stories in the Hebrew Bible, that is, the Old Testament, suggesting that previous promises had been fulfilled, or were about to be fulfilled. And the legendary 144,000 as the number that will be saved or rescued is not a number, but a symbol of completeness. It is a multiple of the 12 tribes. My podcast on numbers and religious texts discusses the logic of these numbers. You would probably like it if you have not listened to it. There's a passage that I have seen on gravestones that, to me, is the core message of this book. Mesker tends to agree. Forget the metaphors. Forget the poetry. Forget the drama. Let me read the passage to you. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for God will be their shepherd and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a message for the ages. And this is a book to help you understand this awesome but very complex and confusing text. I have two final thoughts, very short thoughts. First, I considered including Kierkegaard's amazing book, Fear and Trembling, about Abraham and the attempted murder of his son. Or was it a sacrifice? What was it? Kierkegaard decided in 1841 to discuss the complexity of the of this story from an ethical perspective. I love the first chapter, but the chap second chapter was so intellectually dense that I decided to spare you. I'm not recommending it.
Second, my wife, who is my editor and critic, says this is the best podcast I've ever written. She really liked it. Maybe that will encourage you. It certainly encouraged me. Well, that's the end. I hope you will consider reading one or more of these books. Each and every one is worth your time. Thanks for listening.